Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, and welcome to One's Too Many, a podcast dedicated to helping veterans and first responders get through the struggles they might be facing internally or externally. Hear interviews with special guests and experts. So whether you're struggling with transition, depression, or even problems at work, we're here for you to give you actionable advice and examples of how you can get through them and succeed by those who have struggled too. I'm your host, Adam Salters, and thanks for listening. Hey everyone, and welcome back to One's Too Many, Episode 5. For this week's guest, we have Brad. He was a 20-year veteran, four of which were in Bravo Company 3rd Ranger Bat, four years at a Ranger Reconnaissance Detachment, and 11 in USASOC's Combat Applications Group. Since getting out, he has spent time working on his music and working with different nonprofits. He plays in a band called Silence and Light, who are actually about to release an album, which all the proceeds from it will go to these two nonprofits. Please join me in welcoming Brad. Sure. So I'm uh, retired from the United States Army. And I served for 20 years, uh, eight of which as a ranger, and as a ranger, four of four of which were in Bravo Company Third Ranger Battalion, which is in Fort Benning, Georgia, and then spent about three and a half years in the Ranger Reconnaissance Detachment, also at Fort Benning, Georgia, and that was a little more specialized. Mm-hmm. You know, we conducted like military freefall and waterborne training and all kinds of waterborne, not waterboarding. <laughs> and anyway, then went to a selection for the U.S. Army Tier 1 Special Operations Unit stationed at Fort Bragg and, and made it through selection in the fall of 1998 and then went to the operator training course at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and then was stationed there for 12 years until I retired in 2010. Okay. Why did you join the military? That's that's a interesting question, and it kind of goes way back. But I grew up outside of D.C., mm-hmm. suburban Maryland, and my father was director of medical research at National Institute of Health, and which was a pretty demanding job. But in all of his free time, which was which was pretty much nights and weekends, he was a volunteer fire captain. And so I, I grew up every weekend, you know, going to the firehouse and, and seeing him interacting with his running mates. And <laughs> and there was something about the camaraderie that I mm-hmm. just absolutely loved. And so originally I wanted to be a fireman. And about the time that I graduated high school in late 80s, you know, went to the firehouse where he had been a captain and, and we have no job for you. So... You know, at 18 years of age, I was kind of like floundering. Well, what do I do now? I had, uh, you know, been playing music and doing things like that, you know, for for maybe six years or so, mm-hmm. and and that's ultimately what I really wanted to do. And so my fallback was, you know, be a fireman, and my fallback to that was I'll join the army, and it just kind of <laughs> came from out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So went to the recruiter, and you know, got the runaround, and and basically said, you know, I want to be in Delta Force. The recruiter laughed me out of the recruiting station and, and said, well, you can't do that. you got to be something before that, like special forces. And so I told him, you know, okay, well, I'll be special forces. And he said, well, you can't really be that either. you got to be something else like a ranger. <laughs> and so that's that's how, you know, I came in with the ranger contract. Mm-hmm. So you came with that plan in to do what you were going to do. 
Yeah, that was, that was, you know, kind of with everything I do, I aim high, you know, mm-hmm. and I wanted to, I want to be the best at everything that I do. So, you know, that was my mind frame was I had read a lot of books about Rangers in Vietnam and CIA in Vietnam and things like that. And it was super interesting to me. So, you know, I thought, well, that's the, the most risky, dangerous, high speed thing there is to do. So that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, absolutely. What was your job when you were in? I know you, cha- you probably changed once you went through selection. My MOS pretty much stayed the same. So I came in as an infantry guy, 11 mm-hmm. Bravo. And I didn't even really understand from the recruiter. You know, I was, I was nobody in my family had been in the military except for way back. I had no idea what I was doing. So they could have, they could have signed me up for anything <laughs> in terms of MOS. I would have mm-hmm. had no idea. And at the time, they were probably hurting for, for infantry guys. So in the late 80s, early 90s, most people don't know this, but before Desert Storm, there were actually huge drawdowns in the military. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they didn't take hardly anybody. It was actually very selective just to join the Army. So if you had any sort of like drinking-related offense or if you had drug use or anything like that in your history, they, uh, they, they didn't want you. Anyway, so they, they were probably hurting for 11 Bravo infantry guys. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know. But that was in the spring of 1990. And then over the summer was when Desert Storm kicked off. And they basically, well, Desert Shield, which mm-hmm. was kind of like the build-up to Desert Storm. No, yeah. And, and they opened the floodgates and literally just let anybody and everybody in. Okay. I, a lot of people I've talked to said there was like a noticeable change from like the pre-9-11 soldier as opposed to the post-9-11 recruit. Did you notice a lot, like... I know it's probably a little bit less the units you were in at the time, but did you notice a lot throughout the entire army or military? Hard to say. I mean, only because by the time you know September 11th happened, I was already in a special mission unit, mm-hmm. so it wasn't you know all the guys that I was seeing were people that had been you know someplace else for at least eight years, mm-hmm. you know, in general, and kind of a cut above the rest in terms of intellect and and uh, skill set and everything else. So mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't really notice the difference, but I did notice the difference, you know, just in the Army in general, going from, okay, pre-9-11, what it was like and what basic soldiering was like to after 9-11. And it was, it was very different. It was a very different Army. Absolutely. I've always wondered, what was September 12, 2001 like for you? Well, I was actually home on September 11th because I was going to run our selection course mm-hmm. uh, the next day and was going to be traveling for that. So I was at home packing my stuff, making sure I had all the things that I was supposed to have and was watching the Today Show live, you know, drinking some coffee as it as it happened. And, you know, soon thereafter, you know, once, once I saw the second plane hit, was pretty confident that it was an act of terrorism mm-hmm. and called work, you know, to see if I needed to come in. And, you know, got told, yeah, I actually couldn't, I don't think I could reach anybody. So I got in the car and drove to work. And because they literally shut down because of the attack at the Pentagon, too, they shut down all military installations. So there was this gigantic, uh, probably eight-hour traffic jam just trying to get on post. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I got there at about 7 o'clock at night, I want to say. And really, you know, watching September 11th, live and watching kind of like the aftermath the next few days, the only thing that really was clear to me was 
I know that this just changed the world. And, you know, more specifically, my life just changed drastically. So I know we're going someplace. I know we're going to do something. It's just a matter of when and, you know, where. Mm -hmm. What do you kind of credit your success in the military to for someone that's trying to actually get through that same selection process? It's interesting because because of my social media, I have a ton of young kids that'll hit me up and they'll say, you know, I'm in high school and this is what I really want to do and <laughs> kind of want to follow in your footsteps as far as, you know, career progression in the military, et cetera, et cetera. And do you have any advice? You know, here's, I'm working out, I'm doing these things. And I was prior to joining the army, I was a lifeguard, mm -hmm. you know, sitting around long hair, playing <laughs> music at night and, you know, was a total screw off. And I didn't do anything physical to get ready to join the army at all. I did nothing. I showed up you know, got my big haircut and, you know, basically everything that you do is, is a step in the next direction. So guys ask me advice all the time, probably weekly I get, you know, five or six dudes that'll hit me up and say, you know, what, what should I do? Do you have any recommendations? You know, what's your advice? And the only thing I can tell people is just don't quit. It's that easy. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is not quit. Yeah, absolutely. As always told, it's not easy, but it's very simple. Yeah, it's, it's literally, you know, I got to, I, I went to basic training, I went to infantry training right there at Fort Benning also, I went mm -hmm. to airborne school, by the time I got to airborne school, you started seeing people, you know, it's, it started to thin out, that's, that's mm -hmm. when kind of like the beginning of the attrition happened, and then got to the ranger indoctrination program, which was basically like a three week mm -hmm. kick in the nuts just to try and get people to quit, <laughs> yeah. and it just... We had a formation when the ranger guys came down the street from from the from the ranger barracks to airborne school. Literally, dudes just quit all over the place. The guy showed up and they said, "Get in formation," and we all got in formation. And he said, "Who wants to quit?" Ten, nine, eight, seven, and started counting off. And hands just started flying. Mm -hmm. And and it was it was interesting to see because I thought, why why did you even you didn't even try you know you didn't even you didn't even give it a shot. You, you mentally took yourself out of the game before it even started. And that's something that I just, I completely didn't understand. So, you know, anyway, it's, it's the only advice I can give people is, is don't quit. And you don't just go there overnight. You, you get, you know, a basic training is designed to take you from being a civilian, having no military experience at all. And getting you to be a basic soldier, you know, here are the things and skills that you need to learn and, and know, mm -hmm. and so that starts to prepare you. And then you go to the next thing, and it prepares you a little bit more. And so, so nobody really goes from right off the street to you know high speed soldier. It, it just <laughs> it's a long, long process. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you had to have the right mindset. Yeah, I think I think mindset is everything, and really, it's your goal. You know, what do you intend to be? What do you want to be? And if you, you know, with anything, if you want to get a high school diploma or you want to get a college degree, you just show up at college and get nah, fuck it, and I quit. You know, that's, I don't know, you work through, you know, tough times to achieve your goal. Mm -hmm. In the community you're in, is suicide and, like, depression a, a big problem considering, like, how many deployments y'all go through? Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because the first experience I had with that was... I finished the Ranger indoctrination program, so this would have been April of 91, 
and showed up at B Company, 3rd Ranger Battalion. Mm-hmm. And when I got to B Company, the company was actually deployed in, not deployed overseas, but they were doing a training exercise in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And we had an NCO, his name was Sergeant Knight, I don't remember his first name now. But he was in charge of us, and they called that like the rear detachment, you know, NCO or whatever. So he was in charge of all the privates and everybody that would remain back from from the deployment for whatever reason. And I think within like two weeks, he had he shot at his wife, thought that he killed her, and then turned the gun on himself and killed himself. So you know, within six months of joining the army, I had already experienced that. You know, personally, here was this guy that you know listened to and you know was kind of giving us guidance and everything else and within you know two weeks of getting there 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 was kind of my first experience with that Mm -hmm. so that was that was pre-deployment you know there was was no war going on and i don't i don't think that he was a panama guy so i don't think that he had jumped into panama he may have Mm -hmm. i don't know but, but that was kind of my first experience with it and then after mogadishu there was a a former teammate of mine you know, committed suicide, and and that's kind of when things just started to pick up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's I, I won't even call it a huge problem. It's it's it, I believe it's a leadership issue within the military to be able to identify guys that are struggling or have issues, have problems, and help them help them get help. Okay, and it kind of kind of doesn't exist. It's not really the army's goal. The army's goal is to go fight bad guys and kill people, and not not to rehabilitate soldiers. And, and uh, anyway, I think that they need to put together a program or figure that out, how to, mm. how to identify guys. And, and also, too, when you're a leader within the military at, at any rank, it's your responsibility for your guys' well-being. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's something that, that gets overlooked because, you know, here's a guy, you want him to deploy with you, you want him to be on your team. And he's struggling, and guys tend to kind of like overlook that, and and it's something that I feel like leaders at every level in the military, or EMS, or fire department, or you know police departments need to need to keep an eye on their guys and take care of them. I mean, it's guys just don't join and want to kill themselves. You know, it's it's trauma that happens. It's it's uh, it's all kinds of stuff. So you know, it's it's a leader at any level responsibility to keep keep an eye on your guys and take care of them no absolutely do you think the military i mean i know when i was still in like they were still like they had recognized everything that was going on like they were starting to do a lot more programs and stuff but we had a guy that ended up killing himself shoot my, my first year in and that their response was to sit us out on the drill like this drill field in fort bragg for five hours in the winter time which i can't imagine helped anything did they kind of handle it in a different way where you were? Well, you know, again, it's like I was kind of at the tip of the spear in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, war and deployment. So, you know, as an example, when when I was getting ready to leave Mogadishu after Black Hawk Down happened and everything else, mm-hmm. the only thing that I got and that all of my mates got was the USASOC psychologist uh, got us all in, you know, kind of like a huddle and said, you know, hey, guys don't let the bad guys win. And that's something that's kind of always stuck with me. And and he elaborated slightly and said, you know, you can take this experience and you can justify beating your wife. You can justify 
becoming an alcoholic or a drug addict because you've lived through this traumatic experience. But ultimately, that's letting the bad guy win. And I, I have echoed that to numerous people after that. Um, you know, but it was something that I felt I really kind of connected with. And, you know, it was always kind of in my lexicon was if I do something because I've lived through all this stuff or I've seen all this death or I've killed all these people or whatever it is, if I do something out of the ordinary, you know, whether it's a family thing or, you know, domestic violence or anything else, it's, it's really it's allowing the bad guy to win in the long run. And I don't want that to happen. I'm not going to let the bad guy win. So if I messed up, I'm going to fix myself or I'm going to find out a way to fix myself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask for help or I'm going to, you know, talk to somebody, call a former teammate, you know, do, do something. I know, but that's kind of where it mm -hmm. starts. Absolutely. I really like that mentality for it, actually. A little bit, when you get out, uh, what was your one or two biggest challenges you went through? I think getting out. You know, there, there are two things. If I was to give anybody advice on the transition from you know, military to civilian life, it really depends on what you're going to do, right? So mm -hmm. you, could, you could get out and you could be whatever, and maybe your job is very rewarding. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that part of it and part of the transition needs to happen when you're still in the military, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I would tell people is – that I never 100% identified as, you know, an operator or, you know, just a special operations, geez, special <laughs> operations soldier. Mm -hmm. That That's not 100% of me. That's a part of me. But I'm also a dad. I'm also a husband. I'm also a musician. I'm friends with people. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm all of these things. So if you identify while you're in the service with 100%, you know, everything you do is, you know, your job, then when you leave, that's, you, you lose that. You lose your identity. You lose everything that you struggled and sacrificed to become, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would tell people while they're in the service or when they're an EMT or a fireman or a police officer that, you need to identify with more than just your occupation because mm -hmm. ultimately when it comes down to it, you can be doing great things for America, but it's, it's ultimately it's your occupation. Mm -hmm. So you need to be more than just your occupation. Okay. And then that kind of parlays into the transition out, which for me, ultimately it was, it was like finding my purpose, right? You mm -hmm. live in the military, you find, you know, you have this great purpose. You're, you're fighting for America. You're defending freedom. You're, you know, fighting terrorism. Those are huge things. Or, you know, you're you're protecting people because you're a police officer, or you're saving lives because you're an EMT, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's incredibly powerful stuff. And if uh, if you transition from that, then then. What important thing are you doing? You know, how are you helping people? What are you, you know, what are you doing? What are, what are you doing for, you know, and, and so you find yourself kind of lost. And I never really found myself lost because the uh, the job that I'm doing is still a part of like giving back to the community. And 
and that's that's mm-hmm. something that I found a lot of purpose in. So I've also done a ton of like fundraising for special operations charities, mm-hmm. and you know that's given me like an incredible amount of purpose, knowing that I'm doing something to help to continue to give back to the community that I came from and that I love so much. So you know that's that's something that I would recommend to people is how can you contribute back? How can you still stay connected with you know, the people that you loved and served with or, you know, fought with or, or whatever, how can you continue to give back and help and find purpose? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I've been reading a book called Intentionality by John Maxwell that talks about that and finding your purpose and being like finding a way to be significant and to help other people. And so you think that that really helps your transition? I think definitely so. It's It's something that, you know, I think most people, what I've seen, because I've been out for uh, about eight years now, so mm-hmm. what I've seen is the first year and a half is very exciting because guys are like, ah, I can do whatever I want. I don't have <laughs> yeah. to, you know, the first mm-hmm. sergeant isn't telling me to do X, Y, and Z. I can, you know, smoke marijuana. Mm-hmm. I can drink whenever I want. You're going to call in for a DUI. You know, you can, you can kind of do all these things. And so what I've seen is that it's there's like an 18 to 24-month window where Mm -hmm. a dude has a great time and maybe he kind of gets a little excessive with you know whatever it is he's doing (laughs) and and really enjoys it because now i'm not in the military anymore and then he kind of realizes you know 18 to 24 months after that man this just isn't as important as what i used to do Mm -hmm. and it's not as fulfilling and the people aren't the same and you know all that kind of stuff and i think I think that's a natural, you know, kind of human emotion to, you know, being removed from a situation or not being in the same type of job that you were in. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, it's, I think there's a, a grace period of, you know, 18 to 24 months. And that's, that's when the kind of everything starts to hit. And I think if you can get out and you know that, or while you're making that transition, you kind of understand that is something you're probably going to face then it can help you, you know, identify that as it starts happening to you. Mm-hmm. I know you talked a little bit about you're doing a lot of fundraising, different nonprofits. What are some VSOs like someone going through that you would like recommend that have a good purpose and a? What do you mean? Like, what's the, what, what's the what are some good veteran service organizations out there that have been helping people throughout, say, the special operations or just the regular ar- army? Besides, we have all heard about wounded warrior. We've all heard about different organizations like that, but is there any ones that we don't know too much about? Like I know I've been talking to a couple from like the Honor Foundation, help transitioning SEALs and the Raider Project and stuff like that. Um, there are two that I'm, I'm choosing to support currently through, uh, through what I'm doing, which is playing music, but basically mm-hmm. releasing an album in October. Mm-hmm. And the proceeds from music sales will go directly to two different organizations. One is the Marine Raider Foundation, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of like monies that directly go to families, you know, when someone's killed in action or mm-hmm. killed in training. So, you know, there are folks that can't afford to go stay in hotels, you know, while there are funerals and other arrangements or memorial services or afford the plane tickets for all 16 family members or things like that. So mm-hmm. they, they do a really good job of directly helping out and compensating family members. And, and the other is uh, Warrior's Heart, and that's a physical facility that was founded and started by 
a buddy of mine, former teammate of mine named Tom Spooner, who, uh, who is kind of legendary within the community for, for the number of deployments he's got and everything else. But it's basically for first responders. It's for not just veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a physical facility that kind of treats the whole symptom and issue of post-traumatic stress. So mm-hmm. what you see usually, I don't even, I want to, I won't even say usually, but a lot of times you see within guys that are struggling with post-traumatic stress, there's some sort of uh, substance abuse Mm -hmm. issue. And so they they treat that first and then kind of start with treating the post-traumatic stress and helping guys learn coping mechanisms and things like that. But if you're, you know, if you're trying to numb your pain by using drugs or using alcohol, it only lasts so long. and then it comes to a head, and it really clouds your judgment, and it and it makes you uh, make really poor decisions. So, mm-hmm. anyway, that's that's uh, the the two organizations that we're electing to support with with sales proceeds from from the music we're selling. Okay, fantastic. You're just talking about music you play. What kind of music do you play? So it's a band called Silence and Light, and again, it's it's just kind of taken off and. All formed, and we're in the middle of writing and recording. In October, we'll go and record with with a huge former veteran producer named Josh Goodwin, G-U-D-W-I-N. But if you check out his discography, it's pretty insane. All the folks that he's worked with and and helped, you know, kind of make their music the best. So he's he's behind the project also, and and again, that'll that'll come out in October, and we're taking a hundred percent of the sales from from the music and contributing that to those two organizations that I just spoke of. Okay, that's fantastic. Do you think that, I guess, your experience in the military kind of affect like what kind of music you play? So, you know, what I'm, what we're playing is, is basically, I don't know, it's like a conglomeration of all of our influences and, uh-huh. and all of us basically have a lot of the same influences, which mm-hmm. comes, you know, from grunge it comes from heavy metal it Mm -hmm. comes from rock and roll so yeah if i was if i was to define it you know it's kind of alice in chains like Mm and then you know there aren't a lot of happy feel-good songs at the same time it's not just gloomy sad music Mm -hmm. you know there's some harder driving stuff there's some softer stuff so it's 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 diverse okay kind of wrapping up on time a little bit i know you got to go for the people who are listening to you how would they Go about following what y'all are doing. I assume that you have a Facebook. How would they go about like pur- purchasing your album? So it'll uh, it'll hit Spotify and iTunes and all the digital media places that you would normally buy music. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully nobody just dumps it on YouTube, so it forces people to you know buy and by buying the song, you're contributing directly to these charitable organizations. So mm-hmm. you know that's that's a good thing. My Instagram is kind of like the, the main hub right now just because we're still kind of standing up the whole business side of things, mm-hmm. which is a website, Silence and Light Music. Um, it's also going to be a Facebook. I think we've stood up the Facebook page. We just haven't started dropping content in there. So, mm-hmm. you know, my Instagram is Bradford underscore official on Instagram, and that's kind of where you'll see all the news and everything else right now, other podcasts that I've done or that we've collectively done. Uh, some video stuff, some some former military pictures and things like that, and and also just a whole bunch of other good stuff. So that's kind of where everybody can check things out right now until 
all the other pieces and parts get stood up. Okay. I'll definitely make sure to put that up on the show notes just so everybody can see. And I always ask this ending question. If you could give like three pieces of advice to someone who is struggling in our community, what would they be? It's tough, you know, because I've, I've never personally been in such a dark place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I can't, I can't really fully understand, but I would say reach out and connect with somebody, you know, and just tell somebody that you're struggling because, uh, you know, you come from a community where people want to show their strong side only, whether, you know, you're a police officer or a fireman that's, that's seen a lot of crappy stuff, um, you know, I think it's just very important to reach out and tell somebody that you're struggling. Mm-hmm. It could be a family member. It could be a teammate. It could be anybody. Nobody thinks. I think the stigma of PTSD is is very different than what it was, you know, like post-Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody thinks that people are crazy and having flashbacks and going to kill up a, a bunch of people. I don't think that anybody thinks that, nor do I think that they think it's weakness, but it's definitely not weakness, and you know it's something that can be it can be fixed. So no matter how bad you think it is, if you want to use me as an example, that's great. I've lived through it all. I've burned all nine. If I was a cat, I've burned all nine lives, <laughs> no doubt, and seen some really dark stuff. Lived through some really dark stuff. Lost tons of friends. Lost tons of teammates. And if I can do it, and I can be okay. You can do it too. So find, let somebody know, number one, and then as you start the recovery process, find that purpose. Find what that thing is that you can love and and put a lot of time and and energy into that's healthy and creative and positive. Okay. Well, fantastic, Brad. I really appreciate you coming on, and thank you for everything you're doing with our community with uh, the different uh, fundraising and everything, and we definitely hope to have you on pretty soon. We're happy back yeah. on pretty soon. Thanks a million. Thanks for the support, man. All right. Well, I hope you have a great day. All right, dude. You All too. Right. Thanks, man. Later. Thanks for listening to One's Too Many. If you like what you've just heard or you think it would benefit someone you know, share this episode and pass on our web address, onestoomany.com, to someone you believe might need it. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes so we can continue to spread our message. Be sure to check out our website for previous podcasts and check us out on Facebook at Ones Too Many and Instagram at Ones Too Many underscore official. This has been Adam Salters. And remember, you matter. You've got this and you're not alone. Thank you.